This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I have another hour of bookish treats for you today. Later in the hour, the host of The Garrett, a literary podcast, Astrid Edwards, will join me to talk about Sean Tan's new heartbreaking and ultimately breathtaking children's book, Cicada. Jessica Townsend's Potteresque Trials of Morrigan Crow series and just what kind of preparation it takes to do a good literary interview. Very soon though, Shakespeare, just when you thought you'd heard all the tall tales and conspiracies around the bard, was he really just a front for Francis Bacon or Marlowe? The plot gets thicker as one bibliophile follows the mysteries, forgeries and myths surrounding Shakespeare's missing library. Stuart Kells will be in to talk about his book on the subject. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I am very happy to introduce you to a book that I have uh, just recently been reading. Bibliophiles have hunted for traces of Shakespeare's library, hoaxes abound and sometimes literally with fake binding and falsified documents, feeding the hopes of literary sleuths throughout history. But what does the search for Shakespeare's library tell us about the writer himself? Was he really the great genius of letters, a front for another writer like Francis Bacon or Marlowe, or does the truth lie somewhere in between? That's all the subject of Shakespeare's library, unlocking the greatest mystery in literature. And joining me now is author Stuart Kelly. Stuart, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. Great to be here. So you have uh, really actually um, breathed life, I think, into this subject, following the path of antiquarian bibliophiles with all the kind of red herrings, false leads, forgeries, duplicity, mistaken identity, um, you know, weird spiritualists and everything else in between. Tell me about your journey into this strange world as a, a proclaimed bibliophile yourself. Well, it's a good point about breathing life into this field because, you know, there should be a disclaimer. If you start writing about Shakespeare, people's eyes glaze over that, you know, they were tortured with Shakespeare at high school. Um, Even a lot of people who are involved in in contemporary theatre won't go anywhere near Shakespeare. And it's a topic that's been kind of, you know, had a lot of the fun squeezed out of it. And so this book's about putting a lot of the fun back and really looking again with a different take on Shakespeare and a different take on on the publishing history and yeah like that like you say the, the history of all of the scandals and frauds um how did I get into it well that's my that's my area um is biblio mysteries and biblio scandals and I've written about libraries in the past and uh, this this story just drew me in and uh, it's not just one story it's it's you know 50 different layers of stories yeah, absolutely. I, I really, um, I guess one of the things that's sort of fascinating about it, um, and, and this is just to kind of uh, take a bit of a step into the area of, you know, of Shakespearean scholarship itself. I, like many others, read the uh, Bill Bryson book on Shakespeare, which is the slim, a slim volume. Uh, and as Bryson himself says, it's 
it pretty much contains all we actually factually know about Shakespeare. Uh, but even within that, he sort of really um, lays bare the fact that we don't really have a lot of knowledge. And I think you actually quote someone as saying um, that Shakespeare is kind of a, a literary brontosaurus, nine bones and a whole lot of plaster. Mm. And I thought that was just a fantastic description, especially because isn't brontosaurus isn't a brontosaurus one of those kind of now debated uh, um, beasts? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I think um, it's probably a fairly apt description, in fact, when we, um, when, when you know, in this book and in others, you start to delve into the, the biography or, uh, of the man himself. But you're actually more interested in the bibliography of mm. Shakespeare. And this is where I think the intrinsic difference in your book and others lies and in what makes it so utterly fascinating. Because this is not a dead subject anymore, even though very much most of the characters involved in it are dead. Um, and in fact, um, you know, it, it goes into the world, the wonderful arcane world of, um, of antiquarians. So can we talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like that is really one of the most wonderful elements in this book is the kind of, you know, the strange characters, the mysteries, um, you know, the, the false journeys and the books themselves that come into this. I feel a little bit sorry for Shakespeare because he's been so contested and so fought over and pulled in different directions. Um, Virginia Woolf uh, said uh, very rightly that every book about Shakespeare is actually about the author and not about Shakespeare because Shakespeare's a mirror and you bring yourself to it. And to the extent that I've brought myself to this area, I'm fascinated by, as we said, biblio scandals, but also the physicality of bookmaking, you know, the story of, of, of publishing, um, the story of bookbinding. And there's been this incredible tradition of people ever since Shakespeare's lifetime, both uh, really embracing the physical side of, of Shakespeare, so trying to collect the original texts and trying to preserve things, um, but also uh, physical fraud. So fake bindings and fake manuscripts, and it's a very, it is a very tactile area, um, and yeah, there's this, there's this sort of incredible um, physical monument to Shakespeare in the way that different editions have been produced and different uh, artifacts have been created, but there's also a physical monument to Shakespeare fraud out there as well. So if you go to the British Library or the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, they have uh, wonderful genuine texts and contemporary bindings and things, but they also have uh, equally uh, spectacular fakes. Yeah. One of the things that I learned through reading uh, your book is actually that um, the books were quite often bound, in fact, uh, by the people that own them mm. and the bindings. And this is com was completely news to me, I have to say, uh, because like many people, many modern people, I assume that bindings were something that the publisher did produce. And in fact, obviously, in a modern context, that's utterly true. Mm. Um, but, you know, when I... I stopped and thought about it. You know, I worked for years in magazine and we used to regularly get, um, or every year, in fact, get our um, entire collections collection of the the annual publications uh, bound, bound into up. a sim single edition by by these strange old <laughs> creatures in, like book binders um, that you know that would put them all together into one volume and and this was what used to happen books themselves were those you know those kind of pages that were sewn together um, 
that, you know, just had paper kind of outers um, and those who were wealthy enough to would would put them in these beautiful kind of bindings made of different animals. <laughs> well, there's a real class system about what kind of binding you got made. You know, the, the best ones would be, you know, um, gilt-decorated Morocco and then maybe um, below that there'd be polished calf and then maybe ordinary calf and then, you know, something else. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the mode of binding was a real status system, st- status symbol but this um you know there's a lot lot in this because when people talk about searching for shakespeare's library it's pretty high stakes and the library itself plays an important role in the authorship question and in all sorts of mythologizing about shakespeare but what we picture as shakespeare's library really changes over time so as as you say we might imagine that it had certain kinds of bindings or that you know the, the books were were in a particular format but a lot of those assumptions are actually not true um and you know the, the way that people have conceived of shakespeare's own um, um library has really changed over the years and then people have done strange things to books over the years as well in the 19th century there was a, a real sort of fashion particularly among the you know the top bibliophiles of having their books washed and we think it would be bizarre to wash a book at the moment but um when, when you imagine back then the binding itself is not part of the book it's really the, the inside that's the book and books were printed on rag paper or on vellum uh, and so it was actually possible to clean um, um the, the, the leaves and therefore some of the traces that we think are so important now, bibliography today is a lot about provenance and about, you know, ownership marks. It's about original bindings and about, um, you know, um, previous marks left by other owners. But in the process of rebinding a book and in the process of washing a book, you wash away a lot of that history. So it's 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 sort of, you know, there's this incredible change in values. This um, rare book Twitter is huge. And one of the things that we share on rare book Twitter is the kind of the awful, you know, vandalism that happens to books, sometimes in very good libraries, like you have a wonderful sort of frontispiece with a with an engraved um, image and then someone's put the library stamp right in the <laughs> middle of the image oh, or they've trimmed off part of the title or, or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, the, the, the physical history of books is, is just, you know, it's, 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 it's torturous. It's so interesting, though, because in in future years, those very things may actually be of value, that kind of sense that it was in that library and and such a thing as a library existed. Yes. Um, So future bibliophiles might might love that. Um, I I think this is one of those kind of, you know, areas as well where um, you've raised these other characters from from the dead that um, have gone off on their own strange little journeys. And as I was reading this book, I kind of got this sense of, you know, when we think about people from the past, particularly great literary figures like Shakespeare, who've had such an impact, we sort of think of them as our historical figures. We don't really consider that people in history would have also considered them their historical figures Mm. and gone off on these same journeys. And you know, and that's kind of one of the places that you you kind of start. You're starting with uh, scholars from the 18th century, um, searching you know, for Shakespeare. Searching for Shakespeare. Um, and uh, there's one <laughs> wonderful story uh, that you talk about with uh, someone who was allegedly tasked with trying to track down Shakespeare's library, and he travels to Stratford upon Avon and starts quizzing all of the locals, uh, and then gradually kind of builds up this sense that in fact Shakespeare is not Shakespeare at all. Um, and this story was related secondhand. Allegedly, this person, after discovering all this documentary 
evidence of Shakespeare not being Shakespeare, decided it was too hot to handle and then just destroyed the lot of it. Um, and all that remains was his kind of discussions with with someone else or, or similar entries. Can you talk about that? Because that was just one of the wonderful kind of, uh, I guess, red herrings that you throw into this book. It's all about red herrings, this book. It's it's like a, a Dan Brown thriller. You think you're there, but you're in, it's a Hollywood movie where you paint yourself into a corner and then actually you have to paint your way out or find your way out. Um, you're talking about the story of uh, Reverend James Wilmot, and this was a very influential story for a long time and it has all sorts of lurid elements. So Wilmot, Wilmot goes to Stratford-upon-Avon, he interviews the locals, and they regale him with these incredible stories of, you know, the, the, the unusually tall man who was bewitching cattle, the time when cakes rained, rained down and injured pedestrians, the time when the devil came and moved the church spire. And he says, well, these are great stories. Why aren't they in Shakespeare's plays? There's something going on. Um, so that story, and, and you're right, in, in the story he did uh, burn his papers that story was incredibly influential right up until um, the start of the 21st century. And um, it was used as, a, as a, an example of one of the first people to question Shakespearean authorship and to propose that uh, Sir Francis Bacon was the true author. But like every part of this story, there's a twist. And the twist is that that story um, was itself a forgery produced probably in the early part of the 20th century by, um, by Baconian um, spoofers. And um, so lots and lots of literature took it very seriously in the 20th century. And it turned out to be a completely uh, a wrong turn. And so I, I, t- I take a lot from that. One, one of the things I take is that that and another important search that, undertook, that was undertaken in the uh, 18th century didn't take place. It wasn't a, a, what it purported to be. And so we kind of assume that these, you know, Shakespearean manuscripts and Shakespearean volumes that, that um, probably did exist, um, we assume that people might have found them. But lots of things were happening. One was that um, things were just put on shelves and, and forgotten. Uh, and one thing was that things were washed, things were destroyed, mm. things were read to pieces, things were stolen. Um, and I, I trace a, a bunch of those different threads. Absolutely. Um, I think, uh, you know, some of the, the fascination here as well is that they're, um, that the people, as much as they were misguided kind of uh, attempts to to say that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare, um, one of the, the kind of points that you make is that there's actually very little evidence to show that Shakespeare was Shakespeare as mm. well, um, those nine bones that make the brontosaurus, I guess. Um, it's really interesting where you take this, though, because, again, every single step of the way, you're not just talking about your own inquiries and your own discoveries. Um, you're talking about other people's attempts um, to discover things, but through the journeys into books themselves mm. and, and how those things have coloured their perceptions, um, you know, where, you know, there's maybe some people that have have kind of found some genuine artefacts that, that shed a little bit of light on this. Can you talk about where you take this? Because actually... Uh, one of the things that I thought was quite interesting is that um, you wind up kind of saying, you know, maybe the truth lies somewhere in between. And mm. this is one of the wonderful things about this uh, this literary mystery that you're uncovering is that actually the conclusions that you come to are not, you know, I mean, I don't know, should we be giving this away? For the, <laughs> well, for the I'm very happy to talk around it. So um, th- there is this polarisation of Shakespeare studies between the orthodox and the unorthodox. And a lot of people um, in the mainstream really are reluctant to talk about the authorship question and they're reluctant to take it seriously. And when they do, it tends to be very didactic and very linear. Um, So I I haven't taken that kind of approach and I haven't 
I've taken a kind of kind of an open-minded approach to to the unorthodox. Uh, I, I should say that there are errors errors on both sides, um, but uh, where I, where I land is that uh, there was a, a literary person called Shakespeare, and he was involved in the theatre and in the production of plays. Um, but the size of Shakespeare, first of all, doesn't really fit either the standard orthodox idea of this sort of you know, genius-inspired author, but it doesn't fit the secret author theory either. So you're right, it is sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, the Shakespeare that emerges is very much... A, he's, he's very much a collaborator. Um, he's one that relies a lot on earlier texts and on um, post-Shakespearean uh, editing. Um, but, uh, you know, I take a few things from that. One is that um, really there is this sort of inching towards a common ground where we get a right-sized Shakespeare and hopefully the, the orthodox and unorthodox people can finally sort of bury the hatchet and, and, and get along. Um, so I'm not um, in any way kind of mean to the, uh, the heretics, but I also um, try and unpick some of the more fallacious methods that they apply um, and there is a real tradition of people just sort of making things up <laughs> and, and not being challenged. So I, I, I think that the Shakespeare that comes out of this is, is a really intriguing person. He's a bit of a, I don't want to say he's a literary hack, but, but some of his peers were, were, were literary hacks and a lot of the, the, the way of discovering Shakespeare is about peeling back all sorts of different layers, not just the layer of stodginess that we've kind of put on more recently, but the layers of, uh, you know, imagining what so-called literary author would be like. Now, I should say that this sort of fits into a larger literature around, you know, bibliography and forensics and that kind of thing. But it also is part of a, a different take that's sort of emerging now about what is a literary author. Like, we're, we're kind of looking again at people like Hemingway and, and Steinbeck and, and um, Salinger and others and saying, well... The whole idea of the mythical sort of literary author is, is really a bit of nonsense. Mm. And that nonsense has also been imposed on, on Shakespeare. So I'm trying to kind of rescue him from that. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Stuart Kells about his book Shakespeare's Light Library, Unlocking the Greatest Mystery in Literature. Uh, I think one of the most wonderful, wonderful things about this is obviously um, the fact that it is a literary mystery. Um, so you're basically taking books um, as your kind of guide through this, as many people did. Um, and we were discussing this a little bit uh, off air and, of course, you, you've mentioned this in your book um, but one of the books I read when I was younger was uh, Foucault's Pendulum mm. by Umberto Eco uh, people may know him best uh, as the author of The Name of the Rose which was turned into a film back in the way back when in the 80s yeah. in the 80s <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so perhaps you've never heard of him, but uh, he recently passed away, actually, uh, this, this author. He was a great kind of, uh, you know, book nerd and scholar, and among <laughs> many other things. Um, but, but actually, one of the things he did in Foucault's Pendulum was, like, have these great kind of... I guess it's, it was like the, the thinking person's Dan Brown before Dan Brown was a thing, mm. um, where, you know, the, the Knights Templar and all other kind of strange conspiracy theories and myths uh, were, were dragged in, but through... Um, someone going through arcane books and and people who love them and you know and really kind of in a similar way to what you're doing with this which is that you're actually looking at the people who've uh who've kind of 
become obsessed with their hobby, which is uh, collecting books and uh, the people who write, you know, who owned them and trying to learn more about them through those books. Um, and I think that you've you've really done such a fantastic job of that. Early on in the book, you introduce uh, Shakespeare's curse, which is essentially <laughs> that... Um, you know, Shakespearean, the the kind of siren call of, of Shakespeare, I think you refer to it as, uh, has led many to their doom, mm. um, whether through loss of sanity or <laughs> loss of life because they've just wasted so much time on it, mm-hmm. um, or in some cases that's slightly more fanciful poisoning, um, yes. you know, or other strange and, um, you know, and... Uh, slightly unnatural deaths uh, that have occurred as a result of this. Um, talk to me about this aspect of it because it's quite wonderful that this like crazy sort of, you know, occultist almost like group has come out of what we think of as erudition, yes. learning, but it's really just about, you know, the thing and obsession. It's a very, very diverse field, Shakespeare scholarship, <laughs> and, and it stretches the word scholarship to, to breaking point. Yeah, there's a lot of people who literally uh, died in, in this field, either died in prison or died from arsenic poisoning or, or all sorts of other things. There's people who you know, made their name by stealing first folios and those kinds of things. And then there's all sorts of other different kinds of tragedies. Uh, there's the chap, um, uh, Orville Owen, who was obsessed with the Baconian theory of authorship and he invented this uh, crazy, uh, what he called a wheel of fortune, which was a, a, a cranking uh, machine that had a collage of Shakespeare's works and Francis Bacon and other playwrights. Um, and he used that to find secret codes buried in the texts and ultimately found a, a message in there saying that the, um, that the original library was like eels in the mud. And, and he took from that that it had been buried at a riverbank um, in iron boxes, and he launched this disastrous expedition to um, southern England where he excavated at great expense the, um, you know, the riverbank and found uh, nothing <laughs> documentary, a few um, stone relics and things, but nothing to do with Shakespeare, and then went on to the next disastrous search after that and ended up more or less bankrupt. So um, I, I've kind of gone into this a little bit. Like, I have, I have inhaled... In the, in the Shakespearean uh, fog, but I have gone in hopefully with a bit of a bulletproof vest on and a hard hat uh, so that I can uh, escape uh, the curse. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, as, as we talked about, a lot of this is is really a route to madness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even just reading it, I started to feel a little bit wound <laughs> up in like, how did we get here exactly? It's it's so crazy because especially when, you know, you kind of follow a theory and it seems vaguely plausible and, you know, you're with the character as they go on their journey and then you suddenly get the rug put out from under you and you're well, like, been, no. Definitely, there's been an amazing response to the book uh, from orthodox and un- unorthodox scholars. And, yeah, I mean, I, I get carried up carried away as well and um, I play with the idea of you know this this yearning we have for discovery and you know I I sort of tantalize the reader occasionally with different kinds of discoveries and then like you say pull the rug out Um, but people have been emailing and writing saying oh well actually it's you know the the true story is that it was you know that Shakespeare was was Jewish or that Shakespeare was this particular heretic or this particular you know secret author and my first reaction is to say, well, that's interesting and to get, you know, drawn into it a little bit and to entertain, um, you know, the, the, the different theories because it, it, it is, as you say, it's a siren's call of, of seduction. Before I let you go, I have to talk about the odd Australian connection that you have in this book as well. 
um, that it's kind of like uh, bringing it home to us with this, this strange kind of occultism. Well, there's, there's three or four different Australian angles. There's the George Barrington side. Which I don't want to spoil the, the fun of George Barrington, but, but I link uh, Shakespeare with uh, Australia's favourite uh, colonial pickpocket. Um, there's uh, a, a contemporary element where we have um, the largest concentration of a particular breed of sceptics in Melbourne at Monash University, and they're the Nevillians. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I explore the different traditions of um, 19th century heresy in Australia, which really were about spiritualism and seances and, and uh, things that people took very, very seriously at the time, um, but um, don't really stand up that well today. <laughs> It's so interesting. <laughs> One has to kind of think that in a way, um, while reading this particularly, that there's, you know, the only other kind of, I guess, authorship that, you know, had such an impact, I guess, on certainly this society and many others, um, or, you know, I guess is the authorship of religious texts like the Bible, mm. um, that I guess in a way Shakespeare is inspiring a similar kind of madness and uh, a similar kind of devotion. Yes, Definitely. It's, 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 it, the first folio is a universal text like the Bible or like the Quran or like, you know, Finnegan's Wake or something else. So you can see everything in there. And yeah, Homer is another example. There's this huge body of scholarship about whether Homer was a person or whether he was a group of people or, you know, where these texts actually came from. So it's, it's, uh, it is a familiar sort of um, controversy. And my, part of the solution for me is really to think about the period and the group of people um, behind the works as much as to try and attribute fine-grained, you know, this line of text belongs to this author and this line of text belongs to that author. Because, you know, again, it, it, it's another route to, um, to insanity. Thank you, Stuart Kells. This has been great. And it is a very um, interesting reminder that actually conspiracy theories <laughs> and, and wacky journeys down down strange hallways is not just the province of the modern kind of internet era. Uh, it very much has been with us uh, since books have been. So uh, thank you very much for reintroducing this topic. Absolute pleasure. Uh, that uh, was Stuart Kells, uh, who is the author of a, an excellent and incredibly fascinating read, uh, Stuart uh, Shakespeare's Library, rather, um, Unlocking the Greatest Mystery in Literature, which is out now through text, and I very much recommend it. Uh, up next, I'll be uh, talking with uh, Astrid Edwards, uh, the host of podcast The Garrett, which uh, very much like Backstory itself, actually talks to authors uh, about the craft of writing. Astrid will be in to talk to us about what it takes to prepare for a literary interview, but also about some books that uh, she's recently read. So I very much look forward to bringing you that. You're on 3RRR. 3RRR. So there is another um, podcast that I very much like to listen to that is all about uh, writers on writing and looks at uh, what it is uh, that goes into making a book and the people who make them. Joining me today to talk about uh, what it takes to do a literary interview and also some books that uh, she's recently come across is the host of podcast The Garrett Writers on Writing, Astrid Edwards. Astrid, welcome to Backstory. Mel, thank you for having me. It's so delightful. Uh, now, you have been very generous uh, in 
introducing me to a couple of books that you have recently read uh, and uh, highly recommending. Uh, I have to re- I have just realised that I often don't talk about books for very young readers on this show, and so I'm really delighted to introduce uh, some of these books. One, a book for middle readers, uh, and the other that actually is it a book for children or is it a book for all of us? Uh, and perhaps we should start with this one. That is Cicada by Sean Tan. Talk to me about this book, Astrid. Uh, this book uh, came out in June 2018 and it blew me away. All of 150 words, many of them repeated. And I think it actually might be the most powerful book I've read this year. I'm an adult and this is found in, you know, the hardback picture section of any bookstore you go into. Extraordinary. It is a story uh, for children. Uh, the eponymous Cicada uh, is, you know, working in a in a corporate office and, you know, finds his way in life. But as an adult reading this to a child, it prompts all sorts of feelings. Um, uh, adult feelings, Mel. It really does. I... I actually am struggling to sort of talk about exactly how I feel about this book. Um, to describe it, uh, it's a, a hardcover book, um, you know, a reasonably big format, uh, grey with a little cicada person dressed in what looks like a very drab suit and the only colour on the cover is his little green face um, and his big bug eyes. Um, the book is written in this strange uh, broken English um, to give you a sense um, of it. Um, there is a blurb on the back of the book that says, Cicada tells story, good story, story simple, story even human can understand, talk, talk, talk. Um, it's the heartbreaking story of a cicada that works in an office who is, you know, not only ignored but uh, but actually tormented uh, by his colleagues. Uh, he works there for a very long time and the story ends. Um, I have to say for those of you who are considering whether or not to... Um, to, to read this to your children, which I do recommend. Uh, it's dark, but but has a wonderful finish. Um, I think uh, we can give away that the end is delightful in the extreme, that the cicada um, breaks out of this grey shell and flies off to live happily in the forest um, from whence uh, one presumes he originally came. What did you get out of this book? Because I imagine everyone's going to bring something else to the book, um, there's some obvious uh, analogies to be made, but, but what did it bring for you, Astrid? Well, as an adult, I reflected on my career and my eight years in a corporate <laughs> office. Uh, it did give me a, a, an adult life moment. I did read this to my nieces, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and both of them were transfixed. They took it seriously. They knew that this was a serious story. I think they felt felt quite sad for Sakata, uh, but... You know, by the end of it, they were naming all of Sakata's family and they were on board. And I think that it's testament to the fact that children really do understand and engage with serious uh, stories. Obviously, they only engage as far as their understanding goes. So the seven-year-old had a very different, um, uh, I think, intuitive response than the four-year-old. But they were both deeply engaged and they came back to it and the four-year-old read it again. Wow. or engage with the pictures again. And the pictures, of course, the artwork is beautiful. It's Sean Tan. He is an, an artist and an illustrator. Um, you know, he's been involved in Wally and different Pixar movies. So, I mean, this is this is world-class beauty in terms of looking and engaging with the, the pictures. I've always thought that children writers really are among the greatest poets that there are. Like, And honestly, they're... 
they're stories that uh, adults have to read and reread and quite often they have a rhyming element or some kind of meter to them that that means that children kind of get into this rhythm um it's something about them and and maybe we can touch on this a little bit more later um that kind of really gets deep into your brain and um and, and i guess forms a part of it almost you know becomes a part of your brain waves i guess the way that the Tan tells this story is really part of the delight. I mean, he's always been an incredible visual storyteller. He's, you know, and the, this is no exception. I mean, these images are so evocative. It's it's uh, incredibly heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, when you have uh, the image of Cicada lying on his back with a, with a foot on him mm. um, and coupled with the lines, human co-worker no like Cicada, say things, do things, think Cicada stupid, talk, talk, talk. Always the talk, talk, talk throughout it as well and this heartbreaking, um, you know, idiosyncratic English. Yes, I had the, the great pleasure of interviewing Sean Tan a few weeks ago and I asked him about the broken English and he said that... Uh, his father, who is a migrant to Australia, never learnt fluent English. And as he wrote the script, he was thinking about otherness and uh, that that search for identity, that search for home, and he realised that he was kind of writing in his dad's voice. It's amazing. Um, I can't recommend this book highly enough. Astrid, thank you so much for introducing it to me. I really, it actually made me cry. I'm not, I'm not ashamed at all to say that, I think. I'm not ashamed either. And my partner and I, um, you know, he's a 46-year-old man. We had a a life talk after reading Cicada. I recommend this for all ages. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, There is another book you've given me to have a look at, which uh, I'm very grateful that you did. I have to to admit it kept me up a little bit later than it should have. Um, This was Jessica Townsend's Nevermore, The Trials of Morrigan Crow. This is set to be part of a rather long series, I gather, and it is, in fact, and I think you even introduced it to me this way, as a kind of Potter-esque kind of tale set in a in a completely different uh, world, but you're introduced to uh, the rather unloved Morrigan Crow, who is a cursed child right at the beginning, and, you know, it's sort of set up as, you know, it's about to be quite a dark tale, but one that very much... Uh, fits in with the the very uh, excellent storytelling that you've come to associate with the very best of middle reader type of literature. Can you talk to me about this book? Oh, yes, I have so much to say. Um, Firstly, a comparison with Harry Potter is always a bit dangerous. Firstly, it's a big call and nothing can be like or replace Harry Potter. But this stands up, I guess, for two reasons. Firstly, that feeling when you go into the world of Harry Potter, whether it's Diagon Alley or whether it's the Weasley's Kitchen or whether it's the Gryffindor com- Common Room, that, that feeling, that whole different world, I actually have that, uh, and apparently other people have had that, uh, with this world, with Nevermore. And so, you know, to be honest, if I was a 12, this is the world I wished I had been reading about when mm-hmm. I was 12. I think that for a middle grade reader or any teenager, actually, and plenty of adults out there, it is that beautiful escape that not all literature can provide uh, at all. Um, uh, It is dark. Uh, Morrigan is not a loved child. And so the story is a quest for, uh, like Sean Tan's Cicada, it's about finding identity. It's about finding a home and where does she belong? Uh, And of course, I love it. The the hero is a girl uh, and she has a couple of... uh, very good friends, um, girls and boys, uh, a frenemy. Uh, and it's quite a lovely uh, exploration of friendship without the standard, you know, setting it up for a love triangle type thing or whatnot that sometimes uh, poor middle fiction and YA fiction can uh, 
bring into it. It, it also reminded me of the darkness. Um, both of these books that, uh, that, you know, they don't pull punches with darkness. I mean, uh, Morrigan Crow very much is an unloved child, as much as Harry Potter was an unloved child. And um, and we see the extreme darkness in, in the cicada. Uh, I think children do experience a lot of darkness and they need a language to express that. And the very best books uh, not only give them an escape, perhaps, from, you know, the, the jagged edges of the real world, they also reflect them. And it's also, it's a way of, um, for any child or young adult to deal with whatever they are feeling in life. I mean, Morrigan has her challenges. She reacts well and bravely sometimes. She makes mistakes sometimes. She's sad. She's happy. She learns from her experiences. And when she's faced with a choice, um, ultimately she makes good ones. So there is a, you know, a lovely moral for younger readers, but it's hard. And that's what people feel like when they make a a hard choice. It's beautiful. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3 R. I'm talking to Astrid Edwards, who's the host of the Garrett podcast, which is a podcast about writers uh, and the craft of writing, much as we like to discuss on this very show. Uh, Astrid, I uh, we have just been talking about Nevermore by Jessica Townsend and also Cicada by Sean Tan. Uh, and total disclosure, both Astrid and I are writing teachers at the same institution. <laughs> And we did have a brief discussion about um, why adults are still kind of drawn to books that are really aimed or pitched at younger readers. And I think we both kind of came to the conclusion that they sort of reach into a part of ourselves that was that was developed very young. Um, you know, what books do you feel like really touched upon that view or still do in the modern kind of reading I was, doing. I was too old to have that feeling as a teenager with Harry Potter. Uh, I have read Harry Potter, but I read Harry Potter in my 20s, so missed that as a child. As a child, I was a big reader of fantasy. I did love Lord of the Rings, as so many millions before uh, have loved that book. I fell in love with Ruth Park's My Sister Sif, uh, which was just one story. And, you know, I thought I was going to be a, a merwoman for the rest of my life. Uh, there was a world I inhabited. I think the power of literature of really well-written middle grade and YA fiction for a younger reader is they feel like an adult. They feel like a fully realized human uh, and a person and they have somewhere to go. Like it's the affirmation. They can be whatever they want and they're feeling a struggle that other people have or characters have felt that they can be like they can be the hero or heroine of their own story it's it's a beautiful thing Absolutely. to have as a child mine was uh, jenny by paul gallico <laughs> i'm sorry i read it again as an adult because it didn't hold up but uh, but there was that and you know we assume that that children want someone that it, or something that is exactly like them but that was about a little boy that turns into a cat uh, and i was a slightly cat obsessed child some might say a cat obsessed adult um but i it was incredible the description of becoming a cat and learning how to do the things that cats do uh, being taught by another cat extraordinary how that stays with you does teach you a lot about the craft of writing which is something else I want to talk to you about um, Astrid so as someone who uh, like me interviews authors on a regular basis what kinds of things do you try and and get out of an interview because I know that you're particularly interested in the craft of writing uh, and to be honest that's not always the focus when when authors are interviewed what kinds of things do you ask and what how do you prepare for those interviews always prepare by reading their works. Uh, that is very dif difficult when they have had a 40 or 50 year career. I felt 
incredibly underprepared when I managed to interview David Maloof. There's no way I could get across all of his work. So I chose a few that had the same theme and just tried to talk to him about those. Um, for most authors who have not been writing that long, I try to read almost everything or at least all of the books that had been published in the last two or three years. Uh, that takes a lot of time. Uh, so I try to schedule interviews in advance. But when I talk to them about the craft, when I prepare my interviews for them, I come up with a list of questions and then I try not to ask any of the first ones that I've thought of because they're pretty, they're the, they're the obvious ones. Um, and sometimes I want to know the answers to those obvious ones. So I ask them and then try to keep going. Um, I found interestingly that quite a few writers aren't necessarily prepared to talk about um, the craft behind it, mainly because they don't get asked it very much. And so they don't have that automatic response to give me whereas they might have an automatic response to give me about, you know, where were you when the idea came or, or something like that. Um, it's interesting. Is there anything you've learned about the craft of writing through the process of interviewing authors, Astrid? So many things, Mel. Firstly, that everybody does it a different way and there is no right way. It's what works for you. Um, secondly, everybody gets edited. And it's just, you're kidding yourself if you think your first draft is going to be great. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that is one of the wonderful things that, about talking to writers is that they can, you, you get to see that they're just people. They're just people. And, you know, failure uh, and, and, and the strength that it takes to write alone, because any long work, nonfiction or fiction, takes a long time to write, um, sometimes months, often years, whilst, you know, conducting life and, and family and work around it, um, there's a strength to produce anything, I think. That's great. Uh, it's a lovely note to leave things on. Astrid Edwards, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Backstory. Thank you for having me. And if people would like to listen to The Garret, uh, can they subscribe to that on any of their kind of favourite podcatchers? Apple Podcasts, we're available, and also thegarretpodcast.com with complete transcripts. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to thank all my wonderful guests uh, on Backstory today, of course, Astrid Edwards and uh, Stuart Kells, who's the author of Shakespeare's Library, Unlocking the Greatest Mystery in Literature. Astrid today brought in uh, Cicada by Sean Tan and Jessica Townsend, Nevermore, part of the Trials of Morrigan Crow series. Highly recommended books uh, for young readers and not so young readers, uh, as the case may be. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website, or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.